So what do you do as a believer when life's troubles have got you feeling down and out? When things happen and your emotions are rolling out of control? Today, on Pressing Into the Kingdom, we're getting some godly advice from James, the author of the book of James, found in the Bible. So come along. Let's learn together. set forth in his word. I'm your host, George Friesen, and I'm so very thankful to have you here with me today. Let's get started. Three, two, one. Welcome to our study series of the book of James. One thing you will discover immediately about the form of the teachings you'll receive here is that they don't provide a five easy step type process where every step starts with the same letter. And all the words rhyme together, or if you put them all together, they'll form an illiterate and illogical sentence. I want you, the listener, to have the Word of God in you. Not my opinion, not some jingle that you forget the meaning of in a week's time, because though God is able to use quips and snips of information based on His Word, He's promised to use His Word to grow you in Christ. So, as we go through this book, we're going to take the time to prayerfully and carefully discover what exactly James is trying to get across that will help us to press even further into the kingdom of God. The scripture for this study is found in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In his opening statement, verse 1, chapter 1, James identifies himself as a servant. Now, why is that important? He's not pressing his status. He's not pressing anything concerning himself other than servanthood to Jesus Christ, which is the most important person to make a lot about. When we speak about ourselves, we should be doing the same thing. But how often do we as believers puff up when someone refers to us without using our title? Be it doctor, pastor, elder, supervisor, teacher, whatever else it is, Jesus could have gone around introducing himself as Messiah. But most often he spoke of himself humbly as the Son of Man. James was no small fry, though. I mean, he's a shepherd of the Church of Christ there in Jerusalem alongside the Apostle Peter. And yet, rather than announcing his status as a leader, he humbly announced his status as a servant of the only perfect leader, Jesus Christ. 
you know, a lot of books have been written concerning which James it is exactly that wrote this book. And most of them are actually bigger than the book of James itself. So for the sake of time, I'll tell you that the evidence in Scripture shows that this is very much likely the James who was the brother of Jesus Christ, another son of Mary, and one of the sons of Joseph. The same James that was said in the book of Acts to have been serving with Peter in sharing the leadership of the Christian church in Jerusalem. James was a pastor, and he was speaking to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, to Christ's flock who were suffering from persecution. James wasn't speaking to all the tribes of Israel when he says to the 12 tribes scattered. The 12 tribes had been scattered abroad since even before Jesus began his ministry. But James was addressing and tending to the flock that God had given he and Peter responsibility for. No matter who you are in the body of Christ, God has given you responsibilities to serve the body of Christ. Every born-again believer was reborn with at least one gift from God to use in the body and to use to build the body. Some gifts are revealed as God builds us up and others are quickly discovered and grown to full maturity as we grow. You say, hey, wait a minute. You said we were going to learn about how to deal with our trouble. But all you're talking about so far is this guy named James and how humble he is and how we're supposed to go to work for God. Well, you're right. I am. And if you want to be relieved about how bad things are for you, help someone else in the body of Christ. And if you want help from God, be humble. God gives grace to the humble, but God does oppose the proud. That's from the same book we're studying in chapter 4, verse 6, just in case you want to look it up. But James, as we see here, is using the gifts he's been given to care for and to bring to spiritual maturity those that have been placed by God under his charge. These were the scattered abroad, but they were scattered because of persecution for becoming Christian scattered to save their own lives as God orchestrated their scattering and the spreading of the gospel, which in turn brought with it the sort of persecution that in that day caused their lives to be in danger every day, in constant dangers wherever they went, but scattered to lessen the threat to their lives, to a degree. Anyone living in that time would have known something about the depths of anguish that these believers in Christ were subject to. James especially knew, but if you could imagine with me for a moment having to leave your hometown, your friends, possibly even your family, to be forced to either voluntarily give up your job, in other words, being fired, suffering the loss of money, home, lands, your family inheritance, stripped away from you, considered as dead possibly by your own father and mother, by your own brothers and your own sisters, because you're following after Christ and to be required to submit yourself and those in your immediate family that had been born again to the degree of servanthood necessary to abandon all that you knew for all of your life with just the clothes you had on your back, the goods you could take with you, and faith. How amazing of a witness that alone must have been to the goodness and value of knowing our Lord and the fellowship of His kingdom. Well, James doesn't go on to say, as most of us would, uh... I, just, I feel so bad for you, brother. I, I feel horrible for you, sister, which is a very loving thing to say. There's nothing wrong with that. But many of us would go on to say, I'm just, I'm praying for you to get out of this. I'm praying for you to escape the situation that you're in. James says something entirely different. He tells them in verse two, count it all joy when you face various trials. Now, I know, of course, James and others were surely praying for them, but they weren't praying primarily that they would escape. They were praying primarily, I'm sure, that their faith would endure. 
that they press through the difficulty in the power of God and that God would get great glory through all that. It's an entirely different message than what's usually presented today of getting out of troubles as soon as we can. I mean, I've seen and heard, and I'm sure you have too, people just declaring a blessing over somebody or a breakthrough over somebody. Share this five times on Facebook and you'll see the light at the end of the tunnel. They, they, they are telling you, you know, we want to tear you away from all this pain, throw you back into the comforts that occupied your mind, comforts that occupied your time, and the comforts that became your idols. James says, brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James knew the tendencies of man. I mean, James was a man. But the historically accurate history of Israel that's shown in Scripture shows her at times murmuring and grumbling when she'd been uprooted from her common circumstances. And James wanted these people who belonged to Christ and were under his leadership to respond differently than Israel had in the past. In the book of Exodus, we see God doing amazing things in Israel's presence rescuing them from impending death, miraculously providing food and water, giving them the assurance and the comfort of His presence in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night, and yet their focus and thoughts were mainly on themselves and their idols. My needs, my wants, my welfare, my goodness. Do you see yourself in here anywhere? You know, if we're honest, we've all done that at some time or another. And it usually happens when we're hurt, when we're tired, worn out, beaten down, when ugly things have been said about us or ugly things have been done to us. You know what that's a summary of? Trial. During the Exodus, Israel grumbled about their living conditions and couldn't see all of the amazing things that God was doing and had done. How often do we, faced with trials, right away start thinking about ourselves? our lack. And in that moment, our fears override our assurance that God is with us and God is for us. And all that we can think about for that moment of time is how bad it feels to be us. At that moment, we too easily forget that God has said in Romans 8 that he's working all things to our good. We forget that he said in Deuteronomy and then reminded us in Hebrews 13, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That is where our joy is found. That God, the only God of the universe, the only true God, the only all-powerful, perfectly righteous God, has shown time and time again, I am for you and not against you. God was angry with Israel during the time of the Exodus because regardless of how many times he showed them that he was for them, they just refused to believe. Their response to trials was to act like God had never made them a promise as though God wasn't really in that cloud or really in that pillar of fire, and they were acting like the world. You know, though you may stumble and though you might even fall during your journey towards glorification, my brother, my sister, I want you to know that if you're really in Christ, God's with you through it all, and he honors every promise he's ever made to his kids. If you're in Christ, you have strength that's not your own, living within you, present with you always, and you have a God who reigns over every circumstance and every trouble. God's not just for you, but he's named you as sons and daughters. Well, in this letter, James wanted to ensure that Christ's flock under his and Peter's charge dealt with trials differently than how Israel had responded to trials in the past because 
the work that was done by Christ Jesus made them able to rely on even greater promises than those who were under that other covenant during the exodus from Egypt. James was writing to a people robed in the righteousness of Christ. They and we have been born again as a new creation. I'm not who I once was. No, brother, you're not. And you're not just a new person because of how you act. You act differently because you're new. God has said in Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart of flesh he's talking about there is a heart that feels the sting of chastisement when we fail during a trial. It's a heart of flesh that feels the love of God as shown in how he's dealt with us, reflecting the truth of his word that guides us to succeed during and after every trial if we see him as ultimately worthy of all that we are. Then, then it's the love of God that constrains us when we're tempted to sin. Some of you might say, but God was actually with them, you know, in the Exodus. And Jesus was actually with the apostles during his earthly ministry as he walked with them in the flesh. So, yeah, yeah, he was. But Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Why do you suppose that was? Though James was exhorting his readers how to deal with trials, James was a man who had the Holy Spirit of God guiding him, keeping him. James was very much aware that the Holy Spirit of God would guide them as the Holy Spirit of God revealed to them what James had written under the influence of the same Holy Spirit of God. They would glory in God as the only means of salvation, the only means of true hope, the only way to count a trial all joy. You know, today there's a thousand Christs out there and just as many holy spirits. I pray that you saw in your mind's eye the air quotes I was making as I used the word holy when I was talking about the many false Christs and false holy spirits that are trying to get your attention and trying to get your wallet. But rest assured, there's only one true Christ. There's only one holy spirit. If the spirit guiding you makes you fall to the ground and flop like a fish out of water, but doesn't bring an overwhelming love for Christ and his teachings applied to your life, you can be certain that it's not the Holy Spirit sent by God at Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit that guided James to write this letter and the same Holy Spirit who would minister them by the words that James had spoken is the same Holy Spirit you and I who are truly in Christ have today to teach us all things and remind us of what God has said. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away, that I might send the Holy Spirit, John 14. And though this is a history lesson of sorts, I'm not speaking to you that your head would get bigger. No more than James was speaking to them that they could be proud of their knowledge of God and rush out to hit people over the head with it. James was speaking to a people who, in God's mercy, were made humble about their sin. James was speaking to a people who had been made aware that there was only one hope for salvation from the wrath of God, and that peace with God is found in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Can you say that today? Are you guided by the Word of God? Are you guided by the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus? And does God come to your new heart with a rod when you fail in a trial? Does God come to you with His love and reassurance through His Word as you're being tried? If so, you can understand more of how James can say to them and to all of us, in Christ Jesus, count it all joy. 
If you are in Christ, you can absolutely rest assured. Now, some of you aren't going to like this, but it's true. You're not exempt from trials. You're not exempt from pain. And trials, though difficult and painful, are necessary to conform us to the image of Christ. Just like a sculptor draws out a plan, and he cuts away everything that isn't on the page from the stone that he's working with, it might look like he's trying to destroy it as chips and chunks of rubble fall off and dust flies in the air in every direction. It might seem like he has no regard at all for the stone. But as the pieces fall away, the image begins to appear. One stroke may be more altering than another, but every stroke of the chisel is necessary to conform the rough subject to the beautiful image it is to be. Every trial that causes us to cling tighter and tighter to God conforms us more and more to the image of His Son. What your wife needs is a husband that's more like Jesus Christ. What your husband needs is a wife that's more like Jesus Christ. What your children need are parents that are more like Jesus Christ, and what parents need are children that are more like Jesus Christ. How much joy there is to be had when we realize that the gain far exceeds the pain. James isn't saying to act like you're happy when you're suffering. The shortest verse in the Bible is only two very powerful words. Jesus wept. He's reminding us of the result during the process and how the joy of the assurance of the most favorable result of becoming more like Christ will sustain us, causing us to endure through any difficulty. Endurance carries with it assurance. James said that the testing of our faith produces endurance, verse 3. But how? I mean, is it like a scab that becomes a scar, and then it just makes the skin less sensitive so we can endure more thorns? Not exactly. During our trials, we learn more and more of the love of God towards us. We learn about the fatherhood of God towards us, and we discover firsthand that the power of God moving through us in our weakness brings to our experience endurance that leads to assurance. Our endurance through trials is revealed to us as coming entirely from the mighty hand of God. Our confidence grows that God lovingly cares for us through our painful trials and during temptation. The confidence in and the assurance of the goodness of God's love is brought to the forefront of our minds, replacing the thoughts of how good our sin will make us feel. And our recall of past experience with God, did you catch that? Our recall of past experiences with God becomes a right now experience with God. And he urges us to choose him who loves us, who's proven that he loves us so much to the degree that we hear our what was once corrupted and evil self inside now saying as a new creation with a new heart, no, I love him. I love God more than this sin. God loves me so much. He, he gave his son for me. He has brought me through so many things that would have destroyed me had I not known him. Had he not rescued me, well, you fill in the blank. And we find ourselves overcoming the temptation of turning away from him towards a false comfort, a false love, a false joy, and in the desire to continue in his peace, we desire him and we're sustained by his hand alone through both trial and temptation. 
It's the same Greek word, by the way. The Greek word that James uses for trial is the same Greek word often used for temptation. They're interchangeable like Lego blocks. One may be a different color than the other, and at times the correct interpretation says one of these colors will work here, but not the other one. In those situations, it's a perfect example of why you should read your Bible carefully. Always remember, the Holy Spirit isn't going to remind you of something that you've never actually heard, and don't try and tell me reading isn't hearing, because you read aloud in your mind, even if your lips don't move. But if you found yourself time and time again running to the world instead of running to God for His peace, when life goes sideways, or even simpler, when you find yourself bored, where does your mind go? Do you go to war with the evil desires of your flesh? You know, we want evil to be banished from all around us so badly. James is saying, let your trials, let your temptations draw you closer to God that evil be banished in you. So then, if I were to suddenly shift our study of the book of James to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 13, where Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God the Father lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, would all that I've said so far turn into cannon fodder and make you click off now and vow never to listen to this podcast again? Why does Jesus tell us to pray to God the Father that he lead us not into temptations if they're so good for us? Well, firstly, Jesus himself was led into a solitary place in the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, tested, and tried by Satan. Words are important. Let's consider this. The most important words spoken in both of these scriptural accounts, Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray, lead us not into temptation, and Jesus being led into temptation by the Holy Spirit of God, is not the word temptation. Now, the most important word is the word lead. God absolutely leads believers into situations that they will have no choice but to go into spiritual battle. God doesn't suddenly become guilty of tempting man to do evil because he brings him to the battle against evil. Should we then pray that we be brought into spiritual battle that we may grow? Well, Jesus said no. That attitude also seems to be a little like Peter when he said, Though all may abandon you in this trial that's coming, Lord, I'll stay by your side unto death. Peter discarded the truth that it was a spiritual battle, and he spoke a little too soon. Do you remember Jesus' response at that time? He told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan has asked to try you, and Jesus didn't say, and I told him, no way. <laughs> what he did say, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. You know, Jesus is our great high priest who is interceding for us in heaven, seated at the right hand of power of God the Father, praying that our faith not fail. None will be lost that have been given to him by the Father, irregardless of the battles and trials we're faced with. As we have seen through our study of James so far, we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials. When we've come out on the other side, we find ourselves able to strengthen others. We find we've been blessed with the assurance of our salvation, the assurance of knowing for a fact 
that one day we will be face to face with God without condemnation, without the fear of being cast away from his blessing, his kindness, his beauty, and his perfection. And that should bring us joy, unspeakable joy. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that the cup be taken away from him that he would not be required to suffer the trial of deciding if he would go to the cross and drink it. But what was in the cup? What was in the cup was the separation from the beauty, the kindness, the mercies of God. But even more terrifying for Jesus was the separation of the unbroken fellowship that he enjoyed with the Father as the Son of Man on earth. His spiritual essence could never be separated from God the Father, Because he and the Father are one. That would be God ceasing to be God. But the human side absolutely had to suffer separation from the goodness of God in our place there on the cross. Jesus, as the Son of Man, was made sin on our behalf. What fellowship does light have with darkness? God is light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. And so the divine side of Christ could not have been made evil. But the Son of Man, Jesus, was made a curse for us. Should cursing and blessing come from the same mouth, both sweet and bitter water from the same stream? And yet Jesus rose from prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Even so, Father, thy will be done. The trial was so difficult for Jesus in Gethsemane that Jesus was said to have sweat droplets of blood. How far are we willing to go when we're tempted to give up and run away? I'll tell you what's even more important than how far we're willing to go. It's actually understanding that it's God who sustains us. It's not the grit in your guts. If your forehead's like flint against temptation, it's because God made you that way. Anything else is pride, and God does not give his grace to the proud. He gives it to the humble. Rejoice if you're humble. Just know that God made you that way, or humility will run away from you. So then, should a humble believer ask God that he not be led into temptation? Well, it's the cry of a weak man, depending solely on God for his means of escape, and a humble believer exclaiming that God is sovereign over all circumstances. It's the cry that petitions God to not have to suffer, just as Jesus asked to not have to suffer the horrors of the cross, if in God's sovereignty there be any other way. After all, what's impossible for man is possible with God. Our asking in that way is acknowledging the wisdom, the sovereignty, and the righteousness of God and trusting God to always do what's right, to always do what's best for us and for others, even if it hurts. Thank you for listening in on the Pressing Into the Kingdom podcast. If what you heard was a blessing to you, Please tell others that they may be blessed as well. Until next time, may God continue to grow and sustain you in the Lord Jesus Christ.